Welcome to the Arrangers Podcast. I'm Aaron Hedenstrom. And I'm Drew Zaremba. The Arrangers Podcast is a show dedicated to insightful discussion about the art, craft, and business of music arranging and composition. Be sure to subscribe through iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can email us your questions at thearrangerspodcast at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook. And on Twitter at thearrangerspod. Thanks for tuning in. Okay, everybody, welcome to episode nine of the Arrangers podcast. It's been a real treat recording these, and I can't believe we're already on episode nine. How are you doing today, Drew? Great. Good morning, Aaron, and uh, hello to all of our listeners. Thanks for listening, as always. We do something fun today in the same way as we came out of our David Berger uh, interview and did a... uh, score study on one of Ellington's great pieces, Concerto for Cootie, we thought we'd do the same for our Mike Nelson interview and um, and do a Hornheads score study. So, what are going to do today, Aaron? Yeah, it's always nice when you can talk to somebody and then go study their music and see kind of how they've applied uh, all the stuff that you heard them talking about. And we're going to dive right into one of uh, the pieces that he was mentioning in last week's episode. Uh, But before we do that, I just wanted to take a brief moment to kind of catch up on um, what Drew and I have been up to because, you know, it's an interesting world out there right now to be an arranger and composer and just generally a freelance musician because the landscape of the music business has changed so much. So I just wanted to take a minute and kind of discuss what Drew and I have been up to to kind of give everyone a window into what kind of things are, are going on out there. Well, I was gonna. You've you've just finished a very exciting project over the last couple of weeks, uh, culminating a couple of days ago. Tell us about that. Yes. Um, so there's this author named James Gavin who uh, just recently finished writing a biography on the singer Peggy Lee, who you probably have heard with her big hit Fever, but she's uh, had a pretty co- prolific career. And really fantastic singer. Yeah, really, really great. And he released this uh, a few years ago in 2014. And there's a group here in Minneapolis. They're all accomplished musicians from other groups, but uh, they're called the New Standards. And basically, uh, this author, James Gavin, got in touch with these guys because um, the New Standards were playing a song of Peggy Lee's called Is That All There Is, which is this really great uh, kind of a dark cynical song about about the meaning of life but uh, somehow they they ended up working out an idea where they would present biographical information about Peggy Lee in conjunction with a concert of her music and so the new standards approached me because I'd worked with them a couple times before and um, asked if I would uh, basically score and, and orchestrate the show for four horns and rhythm section and so that was a, a really cool project. We just did our, our performance on Monday, and we had four guest singers. It was at this great theater here in town called the Guthrie Theater, which is uh, it's just a really beautiful uh, stage. And um, it was actually really funny because they're they're currently staging Romeo and Juliet, and so we had like this <laughs> we had we had this big Romeo and Juliet, you know, this romantic scene in the background. So. Uh, yeah, and you know that was that was a, a quite the experience. You know, I had to arrange between twelve and fourteen songs. 
quick, right? Yeah, and within a short period of time, and then we had to rehearse. And, of course, when you're working with uh, and collaborating with different people, sometimes you end up changing things along the way, and so you just have to be really flexible. And a lot of times that actually makes the music better because, you know, you're welcoming mm. ideas from all of the, the people and the singers and the rhythm section players. and You're really refining the charts. Yeah, and, and uh, one of the things that we've always really you know, believed in as arrangers is this idea that you're working for the client, not for yourself. And, you know, I wrote more music than I thought we were actually going to play because I figured, hey, if we want to cut some of this stuff out, I am totally good with that. But I would rather have, (laughs) I would rather have a little bit more just so that it's easy to just say tacit, you know. Um, And we ended up doing that quite a few times, whether it was for brass chops to kind of you know, keep uh, keep the chops fresh, or um, something yeah. something was just too busy and it got in the way of a soloist or something. But yeah, it was a, it was a really valuable experience, and yeah, it was really really very cool. What a great gig! Um, that's and that's really connecting with a rich uh, singer tradition, especially someone as famous as Peggy Lee. Yeah, and and what what's cool is that uh, as an arranger, you, sometimes you just get this window into these different songs that you you just wouldn't really discover on your own uh, so that was that was really neat so uh yeah drew what about you what uh, what uh, projects have you been working on recently finished two charts for eddie gomez he's in town uh at uta U- university of texas arlington uh this weekend and we're doing um i wrote two new charts for him uh one on stefan's arrangement of you don't know what love is and another one on Eddie Gomez's tune called Amethyst. And so they'll be doing that with two other charts of mine uh, for this concert on Sunday, which is wonderful. The, uh, the China Project, which I've talked about before on this show, the Chinese Opera Plus Jazz Project, is going to be also at UTA in mid-October. And then I just got a very exciting call from one of my heroes and one of our heroes, really, Vince yeah. Mendoza, who, uh, of course, was the conductor and arranger-in-chief for the Metropole Orchestra for many, many years. Um, And it's just one of the foremost voices on uh, uh, orchestral jazz in particular in the world. Um, Just one of the best arrangers out there today. Absolutely. I I applied to to do this um, Metropole Arrangers workshop, and I didn't get in at first. And apparently... uh, someone had an issue getting there, which is unfortunate for them, but I guess I was next on the list. So I'm going to uh, to the Netherlands to write a chart for the Metropole Orchestra. <laughs> awesome. So uh, yeah, it's a super exciting here. And we'll be, I'll be working with Candice Springs, uh, jazz and R&B vocalist. So um, it's a very exciting endeavor. And I'm thrilled to be there in just under a month's time so absolutely well that's great drew uh congrats on that well that's cool so that's a little window into uh, a couple projects we're up to and let us know what you're up to uh send us a an email a twitter mm. comment or a facebook comment and and share some of the projects that you've been up to we'd love to hear what everyone is doing yeah, or if you have questions about what we've been up to as well um, and want to hear more on the show or just uh, get a response or a discussion going, feel free to reach out as well. Absolutely. 
do you say, Aaron? We get uh, we jump right into some hornheads. Let's do it. Cue the track. <laughs> This is Michael Nelson's original acapella horn composition. And when Prince put it into his song, he just used the horn solely that we'll get to that happens uh, sort of closer to the end of the piece. But we're going to actually deal with the whole piece and kind of talk about um, what's going on with the, the the different aspects of composition. I just want to start out by saying I just really, really enjoy listening to this chart. It's, uh, it's very cool, very creative in a lot of subtle ways that we'll get into with harmony and form, but, but it just feels good. It's just funky and fun. And- There's a lot of rhythm section imitation going on. Because we don't have a drummer, nor a bass, nor a keyboard, nor a guitar, which would ordinarily be providing all of the rhythmic background that we would, that horn players would bounce off of to create their lines. It, without that, there has to be a way of recreating that. And so that's what I think makes this song so infectiously groovy. The very wonderful imitation of drummers, guitar, bass player, keyboard throughout the five horns we have here, two trumpets, a tenor, trombone, and baritone saxophone. And so through articulation and and accents and really, really professional performance, you get an incredibly fun, joyful, and exciting groove. You know, I agree. And and what you just said kind of brings to mind uh, just a kind of a side note here, but Um, the performers you get to play your music really make a huge difference. You know, I mean, a piece like this, which is very, very high technical level of of playing, uh, if you're going to have players that that really don't have their articulation or their technique um, together, then this piece isn't going to work very well. Uh, And so that's why, like Drew said, in a group like this where there's no rhythm section instruments, just horns, um, and you can apply this to string quartet or, or any situation where there's, there's no rhythm section instruments or, or, or limited rhythm section instruments. Everybody really has to be the rhythm section. They really have to do that. And I think what's great about this group is that everyone can do that. And they, they are the rhythm section, and they're capable of providing that, that rhythmic foundation. I think a good place to start when you're studying a score is to just kind of listen through a few times, and that's kind of what Drew and I did. We listened through, we we discussed the 
uh, various things. And you can actually pick a lot of score study up just by listening intentionally and taking notes. But uh, we want to start with form. And there's a, there's a couple ways to look at form. One is the kind of the short term form within each section. And then the other one is the long term form over the entire scope of the piece. And um, so we have, we have uh, those. The, the big form really uh, is intro, melody, sax solo, horn soli, melody, and then it finishes out with a little coda. That's right. And this is a common structure to many arrangements. Intro, melody, solos, development, head out. And it's very effective and, and works really well. But uh, what's, what's a little more interesting, in my opinion, is the kind of internal form. So you have an intro, which is built on a uh, two-bar two riff here. Um, but then once we get into the melody, when the trumpets come in, it follows, it sounds like what would be an A-A-B-A form, but it's in fact A-A-B-A-A form. So it's a truly palindromic form where you have uh, two A sections on both sides of the bridge, which round out that A section a little more to a full, uh, in this case, eight-bar phrase, because an A section is only four bars, uh, because it's 16th note-based rather than eighth note-based, as it's a more funky thing. Right. And that's something that I didn't pick up on at first, and, and actually um, it took me a few listens to, to figure out what what is the form on this? Because the A right. section is so it's kind of sounds like a rhythm changes, and so it just kind of grooves, and you're just kind of drawn into this groove, and then it's you don't really think about the form necessarily until it gets to the bridge, and so I just assumed it was A A B A because it sounds like a rhythm changes to me until I listened to it deeper with Drew, and and Drew pointed out that in fact it is an A A B A A, which is. Uh, to me, it's a subtle difference that kind of just makes the tune a little bit more interesting to listen to. Right, and it what's he he brings further attention to this subtlety in the form by really drastically changing the texture over the B section. It's a very much a, a groovy, you know, quarter note based feel through all the A sections, but then on the B section it goes to a classic acapella horn style eighth note stabs bup, 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 bup. and so because that's such a contrast to what came before we the 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 listener really doesn't notice uh or mind the fact that the a sections are uh the last a section i should say is twice as long as we're used to in jazz because of the this lovely flow of the groove during those A sections. So after the melody happens, we have a tenor saxophone solo, which is always enjoyable. But it's uh, it's not just A-A-B-A-A like the head is, but it's also, it, it develops new harmonic changes. The B stays the same, which is always lovely. But instead of hanging out on the one, uh, a D dominant chord, we instead get something akin to Sweet Georgia Brown changes. So it's like we go into F major and D, the one, becomes a new six. Six, two, five, one. 
And so um, it's very clever because ordinarily the solos would follow the same changes as the melody, but this variation really makes the head out um, speak with a freshness that it wouldn't have if he had stuck to the original changes. Furthermore, it gives the changes a, a breath of fresh air harmonically because they have a, a new direction to go in. And it's a little more, it, it provides a little more direction, like I said, uh, harmonically, because instead of a more static feeling on the one chord, we're going through several dominant chords to arrive at a new tonic. So it's really a, a subtle but beautiful adaptation of harmony to provide variation and freshness to the new section, to the new large form section. Yeah, and one thing that that adds to that feeling that it's starting to move a little bit more is the fact that it's a, a circle of fifths based progression. You know that do 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 that circle of fourths progression moves so so fluidly, and it, and it provides that sense of going somewhere. Even though it's a cycle that goes through that, but but it, it keeps us going. And in a part of the piece where I think, you know, in every piece you get to a point where whatever has been going on up until that point gets to be a little bit saturated and you're ready for something new, boom, he gives that to you and it's a perfect moment for it. And for the soloist, it gives them a little bit more meat and potatoes, something to work with to create lines over other than just a one chord, which again, can be a, a, a very good thing to do as well. It's just a nice way to mix things up. Definitely, definitely. So after our fantastic saxophone solo, we get this one, this really interesting development section, which is the section that was used on the Prince recording, right, Aaron? That's right, yeah. that's It's a, it's a horn soli that kind of... Uh, it, it breaks from the form and does more of a through-composed... Um, development and it's so funky and active and and a little bit more wacky and atonal like it 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 really takes it to another uh level of tension i think and that's probably what attracted prince to that particular part was that it's kind of it's uh it's got such a an intensity to it that i think uh worked well with with that song that he put it in We're getting into a little bit of orchestration as well as form right now, but the variety of textures monophonically and homophonically that Michael uses on this really brings a sense of direction to the whole solely. It starts with the groove with the trombone and the berry sax stays the same through it, and it's mostly in thirds the whole way through. And I think it's in thirds every note of the way through, but there's unison in the trumpets and tenor, and then it breaks it out into harmony parts, three-part harmony, often in fourths, which is a really effective and thick style of harmony, for, for especially for active things like this. And then, boom, 2D section. All the, all the instruments playing almost the exact same thing together, minus a few extra funk-isms from the berry, <laughs> yeah. which, of, of course, uh, comes from very Motown and Tower of Power kind of style. yeah. There's nothing that quite barks like a berry sax, and uh, that became quickly associated with the funk sound. So, absolutely, um, it's you, if you if you have a horn, if you're writing an epic 
horn a cappella soli, there better be a Barry sax, and he better be, or she, or in, in this case, uh, uh, she. That's uh, right, better Kathy be Jensen. Yeah, that's right. So, um, there, she's barking for sure. <laughs> yeah, and you know, e- even though um, the today's modern pop style is so different than than that old uh, Motown and funk and stuff. Um, you know, Taylor Swift, Shake It Off, for those of you millennials listening to this, um, it's got that Barry thing. Bop, 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 That's bop, right. Which, you know, is actually kind of kind of interesting because it, it is that almost a reference to that classic, you know, Motown th- sound. Oh, it surely is. It surely is. Yeah. Definitely. So maybe maybe then, mentioning Taylor Swift will get a a whole new crop of listeners to our show. <laughs> yeah, our audience will quadruple from yeah. four to sixteen. Uh, <laughs> maybe maybe every week we need to just like mention Justin Bieber, and then hopefully more people will will jump on board. We should do a Dirty Loops episode. Ooh, that does sound fun. We should we should interview Dirty Loops. And uh, and and do a score study on because I mean no one no one does crazier pop arrangements than just than the Dirty Loops I should think I certainly haven't seen a whole lot crazier than them I mean there's a lot of great guys out there you know of course but they they're doing some of the most progressive things yes anyways wrapping up our discussion on form uh, the the head out is very similar to the head in um, and. We end with a nice fat note, as we should in a funk section. So um, that's the form. Maybe we can talk about the melody for just a second. Sure. You know, the melody really is, uh, is it's pretty much just a part of the groove in a lot of ways, you know. It's a very riff-oriented melody. It just feels good, and it fits into the groove, and that's about all it needs to do. Right. I remember one of my first composition lessons, I remember my teacher telling me, there's three ways to come at uh, to writing. Think melodically driven, harmonically driven, and groove driven. Obviously, there's many more ways than that, but he was generalizing. And, and I think this is definitely a groove driven style of writing. The groove will get stuck in your head, that's for sure, and the melody is part of that groove. What's fun about the melody is that it really gets passed back and forth between the berry bone and the trumpets. You know, all that back and forth creates the counterpoint that we need to make this five acapella, five horn acapella section sound like there's way more people than there are. I think when you're dealing with wind instruments, you have to break those lines up into the different instruments and trade off because especially brass players, they don't have an instrument that that's very forgiving if you just keep giving them stuff and yeah. you, you need to it's you need to demanding. give demanding. Yes, exactly. And you need to give their chops a break. They'll thank you for it, believe me. <laughs> yes. Because sure, you might say, Oh, well it's just one piece and it's just a few minutes long. But try doing 10 of those at a concert someday, <laughs> you know? I mean, if every piece exactly. is like that and, and has high notes and fast lines and loud dynamics and no rest for the brass players, they're going to just, they're going <laughs> to, well, they're going to be angry. 
they'll be angry and they won't do your gig again. Uh, <laughs> and you want and, them to do uh, your gig again. Right, exactly. We, we need to really, we always need to respect our performers. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it's as, it's as necessary. You wouldn't write a low A flat on a saxophone because they don't have one. And so in the same kind of consideration, we need to imagine, hey, is this really feasible? Yes, it's feasible maybe once in a rehearsal, but is this feasible for night after night on a gig? So um, if you're in control of the whole program, maybe you can make those decisions. But often as a composer, we're not because we're not the band leader or the producer. So we need to really keep our performers' needs in mind um, before we consider what we write. And that's what makes Michael's charts so effective is that, sure, there's a lot of playing, but there's a lot of resting too and a chance for uh, particularly the trumpet players to get their some of the blood back in their face. And the side effect, the positive side effect of leaving more space like that anyways, is that I think the music is better because it, it gives the music a little bit more of a dynamic range to work with. You know, it's not all full tilt all the time. That would be too exhausting to listen to and to play. So I think the side effect of using using space to give the brass players a chance to rest is that you also, I think the music is, actually benefits in that way. We'll move on to orchestration now. And we I mentioned it earlier, but I think it's worth reiterating that there's only five horns here, two trumpets, a tenor, a trombone, and a baritone saxophone. And it's, Michael is really effective at making these five horns sound like a full rhythm section is playing with them. And the way he does that is the effective counterpoint, rhythmic counterpoint in particular. He's super aware of what his bass line is operating with the particularly with the berry and the trombone often playing together, and then making sure that the melody fills in those holes so that when they're resting, there's activity continuing on, just like a drummer would. You know, there's there's often a sixteenth note, ghost notes, hi hat, ghosting, extremely subtle things that keep the rhythm driving forward that we don't often think about as horn players. But Michael's very in tune with that, and so keeping that all in mind helps keep the groove all happening, <laughs> always. If you just look at the score, I mean, and you, you obviously as listeners don't have it in front of you, which we do, but if you look at the score, you can see that there's this constant motor of 16th notes going, you know? And I think that with groove-driven music, it's that subdivision, that motor that just keeps it going and... Even when you have a rest, that's part of the motor, you know. And if you don't have that motor represented in the parts, it's going to lose a lot of that forward momentum that that we desire in music. Yeah, it's uh, you know, it's kind of funny. I just just thinking about this thought. There's no half notes in this piece or whole notes. All right. I take that back. There's one whole note. There's one whole note at the end of the bridge, uh, at the end of the uh, at the end of the um, what's it called? The soli. Uh, uh, yeah, and that's the only place where everyone rests and everyone has a whole note right in a row. And it's it's a it's a lovely breather after all this activity. And then we go right back into the groove. 
Yeah. So um, that's a very intentional choice. Does that mean that whole notes and uh, half notes are bad? Certainly not. Whole notes and half notes are great, but in a in this context of writing a funk chart that's supposed to move forward, it's uh, it's not as effective. One of the other things that goes along with that is Mike Nelson is not afraid to use these funk cliches or conventions or whatever you want to call them. I just think of it as language. I don't like to think of it as cliches because cliches has such a, a negative um, you know, implication to it. But I, I don't think of it that way. I think of it as language. You don't, you don't say, oh, don't use the word the because it's too cliche. No, it's just... It's just part of the English language, and, and you use it because it serves a purpose in what you're trying to communicate. But one, uh, one thing that I, I think goes into orchestration and harmony is um, the use of thirds and sevenths against the root in the uh, kind of the mid-low register, kind of hovering around middle C or so, mm-hmm. um, you know, in the trombones and, and the tenor sax and the berry sax. Where those are the kind of the... What uh, Rich DeRosa at North Texas called the um, the fundamental chord tones, you know, like the third and the mm-hmm. seventh are the chord tones that define your chord. And if you're listening to a chord from the bass up, you're going to want to hear those first. I mean, um, I always think of it like this, like if I'm going to play an F7, I'm going to have my third and the seventh down there in that middle range. And then if I have a sharp nine on top, boom. And sometimes, you know, you'll get students that that question, well, why do you have to put the third and the seventh towards the bottom of the voicing? Well, what happens when you flip the sharp nine and the three is it sounds nothing like the chord you want it to sound like. And so in this piece, you hear that third and the seventh against the root in in that proper register. And... It gets that meaty sound that I think really works well when you have only five horns to work with, but you want it to sound really rich and full. And the other thing mm-hmm. is, because of the overtone series, a lot of those upper harmonics are going to be resonating anyways, and so you're kind of um, creating some of those using these fundamental tones. But uh, but one thing that is used in funk a lot with this third and seventh is sliding back and forth chromatically. So, you know, you have the third and the seventh, and and then you just approach it from a half step below. And that's a, a very typical kind of funk convention that gets used a lot. Um, and you see that sort of stuff, you know, all over this piece. That's right. The third and seventh creating those really important fundamental tones that define the chord and in this style, that sounds very appropriate. You know, Aaron, you just did the uh, the reversing the the sharp nine and the third, and I was thinking to myself, "Man, I want to do that." <laughs> uh, but I wouldn't want to do it on a funk chart like this. Definitely not. Um, not without some really serious uh, consequences. And so, what's What's interesting is, but he gets to show off his other harmonic language in the soli section, because that's uh, he's less confined to some of the tradition there, because it's his chance to develop the ideas and the the groove, 
And so he's doing a number of things that are really, really interesting. Um, the like I mentioned before, some of the fourths uh, all throughout. And then and then he brings in the uh, the sharp nine, sharp five chord. That kind of that kind of vibe. You know, and there's no uh, that's a that's a new sound for this g- composition right there. That which makes it sound very very interesting. He does that. He does some other. This is like in the last part before he comes to that whole note there. Um, lots of beautiful sounds here. Half that half step crunch between the second trumpet and the tenor in particular is. Uh, provide some grit that was not there previously. And so um, I'm sure that's part of, like you said, what brought, uh, d- made Prince interested in this, but it's, it's a development. So you have a lot, you have a little more freedom than what you would do during uh, a regular melody. Um, and because we know we're coming back to it, we don't have to be super conservative. So he certainly, uh, as he, as we like to say, he takes no prisoners with this soli section, and that's what makes it so entertaining and refreshing to listen to. Particularly knowing that, okay, we're going to go back to the groove after this, which he does. He obliges us, and and uh, it's always enjoyable. You know, I don't know what the exact ratio of this section entering within the timing of the piece, but it it almost seems like it's at that golden ratio kind of part of the piece where it's like, it's, it's it's the perfect time to be the kind of the climactic part of the piece. I, I couldn't agree more. He's so patient developing this piece. He starts off with just that basic groove and then just keeps adding layers. And then the first time it goes to the bridge, you're like, oh, okay, cool. There, you know, there's another layer to this. And then he gets to the sax solo, and all of a sudden there's another layer to that because he's adding that circle of fifths harmony to the, to the changes. And then all of a sudden you get to this section, and it just blows it wide open, and there's all these chromatic lines. And right. It's just a lot more free-blowing and, and wild harmonically and uh, very chromatic and punchy and just a lot of accents. And and I think when you're able to develop a piece so masterfully like in this uh, like in this composition, when you get to the exciting part, it's truly exciting. If he were to just have this whole piece be exactly like that, where it's just everything is in your face all the time, I think you know, you would at least risk, um, you know, losing a little bit of the impact of, of the true climax of the piece. Although that can be done effectively too. I'm, I'm not saying that it can't be done. Sure. I think in general you're right. It's also, it can be exhausting on the listener too if you have nothing but, you know, attack. You know, it's it's there's got to be something that is a little more palatable, and then we can get to something a little more challenging. That's not always true, but it's often true. Certainly in this piece, Michael makes great use of this solely section to heighten the intensity, and then comes right back down to something that grooves and sounds fantastic and not as an intense form. You know, in, in a lot of ways, it's funny, but I almost feel like an Ellington connection in this style of writing because 
what Ellington's music had was it had these kind of individual lines for each player, uh, which is what David Berger was was hmm. very um, eager to point out. And the the player had their own personality injected into the music. And even though this is a completely different style of music, completely different era of style, I still, when I look at this score, every part looks fun to play. Every part looks like they have their own melody, their own line. Hmm. Um, and the patience of development and the way that each part has the freedom to kind of express their sound through that through this i think that is what brings it to life i can fully appreciate that yeah everyone's going to play their part knowing that it's very important and individual in in some ways even though a lot of it's together but there's a dynamicness that the performers are bringing to it and a lot of that comes from the fact that it's really well written and each part has their own role to play. Yeah, and not a single note is wasted in this. I mean, every right. every note feels like it should be there and it's supposed to be there. And as an arranger, that's really hard to do. It, it's right. So, anyways, our hats off to uh, Mike Nelson, just a, a just an absolute uh, wonderful r- arranger and composer. This was really fun. We've both done our own acapella horn funk section kind of things, and uh, there, there's definitely a leading authority that we look up to, and that's Michael. So, um, thank you so much for all that you've contributed to the to the art and we had a blast and uh hope hope you the listeners have enjoyed us talking about it and hopefully gained some insights that you might not have thought of before as always thanks for listening and if you have somebody that you'd like us to interview or some scores that you'd like us to take a look at we obviously can't guarantee that that any of those things would uh work out but Uh, We'd love it if you would just send us a message at Mm -hmm. our email, and we would definitely love to start a dialogue. Beautiful. Aaron, always fun chatting with you. Likewise, my man. We'll do it again next time. Thanks for tuning in, y'all. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Be sure to subscribe through iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Email us your questions at thearrangerspodcast at gmail.com. Be sure to find us on Facebook and on Twitter with the handle at thearrangerspod. Happy writing and hope to see you next time.